A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode, which is part one of the story of the life and times of Rabbi Victor Miller, is dedicated to Ili Nishmas Michal Bas Mordechai Shmaryahu, Mrs. Michal Lashinsky, a woman who exemplified the great Midas Rav Miller taught us and was loved by all, dedicated by her loving family. This episode about Rav Victor Miller will be in three parts. He was such an interesting personality with a long and rich and diverse career. So it, there's definitely a, a lot to talk about and won't cover it in one, probably not in two, so we'll have uh, three, hopefully, over the next uh, week or two, um, probably two. <laughs> there is a book uh, written about Rabbi Victor Miller, and I purchased it uh, recently in order to do this episode and read through it, um, and that is the primary source that I used, even though I used others as well, and even though the book also has uh, plenty of nonsense in it, but if you filter through the 560 plus pages, there are quite a few great nuggets of information and stories, and if you fill in the historical context, it can even be somewhat understood and meaningful. I have to give the book a lot of credit, um, It was, and it actually was almost my exclusive source for this, and I recommend it as a book to read. It was quite enjoyable and informative, just you have to bear in mind the limitations that books of this genre have in general. It's nothing specific about this one uh, uh, in particular, but in general, uh, these types of books have all kinds of erroneous information and uh, extensive censorship and not a lot of context. Um, a lot of the significant portion of the book, I wouldn't even classify as biographical or historical altogether, and it's even better than that, actually. It has a lot of Musr and outlook on life and Torah ideas of Rabbi Vigdor Miller and insights, which is wonderful. Several chapters of the book are are uh, fantastic uh, on its own merits as a very you know educational uh, book of his insights and, and Torah and, and, and all kinds of things like that. So um, I, I I will use that. Uh, the, I gotta say what what it is, right? It's a. It was published in 2016. It was authored by a fellow by the name of Yaakov Hamburger, and the title is Rabbi Victor Miller: His Life and His Revolution. Like I said, it's long, but it's an easy read. 
Um, and uh, it's it's very, very good. It has lots of stories and his ideals and ideas. And there's so many facets of this fascinating personality. He was born in 1908 and passed away in 2001. So basically his life covers the full span of the 20th century, pretty much. He was 93 years old and with his full faculties until his dying day. He was a very, very unique individual. Uh, such authenticity and leadership and people skills and clarity and values and the way he imparted those values. It's hard to believe that the world today would be even able to handle that level of authenticity which he expressed in his positivity and practicality. Everything was so practical and real, a sense of conviction. I would think that the best way to describe him as a modern-day American Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, the ultimate Balmusser in his own life with a constant and relentless pursuit of self-perfection and growth in his own life, and at the same time, a lifelong striving to reach out to others and to teach them and guide them to reach their own potential growth in Avedis Hashem. So he's, 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 uh, I was always fascinated by him when I was growing up. I heard about him. He was still alive when I was growing up. I remember, uh, um, you know, people used to listen to his tapes. In those days, it was cassette tapes. And um, he had books, which were fantastic. He had quite a few history books. He loved Jewish history and wrote about Jewish history, which is another reason I, uh, it reson- he resonated with me when I was a kid. I read his uh, history books uh, growing up as well. And uh, I remember one in particular, when my seventh grade class in Yeshiva of Spring Valley in Muncie, it was during Sfira Sa'imer, and the Rebbe of the class, he had apparently been very close with Rebbe Vigda Miller, and he had notes that he had taken from one of the Vadim, which we'll probably cover in part three uh, of this series, not, uh, I don't think we'll even get it in part two, definitely not today, um, of, of uh, he participated in his Vadim, and it was all about what type of things to work on in your Midas, in your Musr, in your character traits uh, during Sphere Saimer. And every day he would tell us, this, uh, this Rebbe in seventh grade, about what did Ravigda Miller want to, everyone to work on on this particular day of Sphere Saimer? And he, uh, and, and in a practical way, not some theoretical thing to work on, but it was actually a very practical exercise. And it was even relevant for us seventh graders. We were 12, 13 years old, however old we were. And um, and it was like this, Ravigda Miller was there present in our classroom there. And and, uh, and there's all kinds of other examples of it. But he was very much present. So he's not so much uh, the past. But today I'm going to focus on the earlier part of his life, which is very much uh, in the past. He grew grows up in Baltimore. Um, and Jewish Baltimore at the turn of the century is teeming with immigrants. It's at the peak of the Great Immigration. Uh, 1908 is, is, is one of the peak years of the pre-World War I immigration. There's uh, hundreds of thousands of, uh, of, uh, of Jews arriving in the United States during those years, year after year. And there are many of them arriving on the eastern seaboard, primarily to New York City, but also to uh, Philadelphia, Boston, uh, um, Baltimore, they're getting, heading out to Chicago also, um, and other places. So there's tens of shuls, there's rabbis, there's all types of Jews, some of them great scholars, some of them completely assimilated and everything in between. People davened and studied, there's mostly working class Jews, many of them even poor, um, yet within a few decades, all of this 
bustling Jewish life, most of it was completely gone. It did not transfer to the next generation. There was a rapid Americanization of the second generation of immigrants. There was almost no Jewish educational infrastructure. There was the need to work on Shabbos. It was impossible otherwise. Everyone sent their children to public school, which was free, so even if there were Jewish alternatives, which there weren't, like I said, but they wouldn't have been able to compete because of the free education. And several, even of Rabbi Victor Miller's siblings themselves, succumbed uh, as well. Several didn't, which is somewhat miraculous. Um, so he's born into that milieu of Baltimore in 1908, a couple of years following his parents' immigration from Lithuania. And um, much of Rabbi Victor Miller's life and experience is somewhat a microcosm of the momentous events of the tumultuous 20th century, and it's somewhat a prism into the dynamics of Jewish lives throughout the century. It was a Lithuanian immigrant family, and uh, at a time when all second immigration uh, immigrants integrated into American society with a distancing of Jewish tradition, uh, Rav Igdor Miller somehow strengthened his commitment to Jewish tradition, and that's the story that we're going to examine uh, today. His grandfather, of Beryl Miller, was a shaykhid, a rabbi, a teacher in a Talmud Torah, um, which, which I'll get to what a Talmud Torah is and what role it played in American Jewish life at the time. I'll get to that shortly. He was also a cantor, um, and he had immigrated from Lithuania at around the time of Rav Igdor Miller's parents. Um, Rabbi Victor Miller's father, Rabbi Yisrael Miller, was a student, actually, of Rabbi Yitzchak Yaakov Reines, uh, before he was in Lida. Rabbi Yitzchak Yaakov Reines, the rabbi and Rosh Hashiva in Lida and founder of the Mizrahi, uh, religious Zionism, he was a famously rabbi in the larger town of Lida. But before that, he was a rabbi in a small shtetl called Shvinsian. And he had a yeshiva there as well. And Rabbi Yisrael Miller studied there and was a student of Rav Reines. And the yeshiva there was the first time that Rav Reines pioneered his experiment, which would become his trademark uh, revolutionary educational innovation uh, later on, which was to incorporate general studies into a yeshiva curriculum. So he started that in Shvinsian prior to moving to Lida, and that was where Rabbi Yisrael Miller studied. Um, so Rabbi Victor Miller grows up in this very strong Torah home, and he recalled the Baltimore of his youth. He um, attended public school like everyone else. There was no other option. All he did had uh, as for his Jewish education, besides for the home that he grew up in, which was very religious, was also the Talmud Torah. What was the afternoon Talmud Torah? This is a feature of American Jewish life. It was these established by immigrants as a valiant attempt to give some sort of Jewish identity and education to their children. For the most part, it was to prepare them for their bar mitzvahs, to teach them how to read Hebrew. And if they knew a rudimentary Hebrew enough to uh, do their bar mitzvah ceremony, then, 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 then their Talmud Torah education was considered a success. Um, it was after a long day at public school when everyone else was playing outside in the uh, urban uh, city streets and the Jewish kids had to go to Talmud Torah. It was uh, taught by usually by underpaid and uneducated teachers who you know, were at the bottom of the rung, the socioeconomic rung in the immigrant communities, very often not even observant Jews. Um, so it was, a, it was the best attempt that they could put up, the, the immigrant communities, 
But and for its goals, it usually reached, achieved its goals to, to, to train these Jewish children for the bar mitzvahs and give them something of a Jewish identity. Uh, not much more than that. Um, and that was the legacy of the Talmud Torah as well. Um, one interesting anecdote does involve one of Rabbi Victor Miller's early Talmud Torah teachers, a woman named by the mis- name of Miss Mural. Uh, she was his teacher one year at the afternoon Talmud Torahs, and she was the daughter of the Shamish of the shul where he attended. And she spoke about Moda'ani and thanking Hashem every morning when one awakens. She was very passionate about the idea and imparting this lesson to her uh, young students. She said some of them don't, some people don't get up in the morning. So those who do have to express this gratitude for doing so and to appreciate the gift of life every day and never to take it for granted and to express through that, their love of God, who bestowed upon them this gift of life. And that lesson made a deep impression on the young Avigdor. And the lesson remained with him for the rest of his life, and it would become one of his trademarks. And it's amazing that it was imparted to him from an afternoon young Talmud Torah teacher at this young age. So uh, you have those uh, you have those as well. Um, he was, Victor Miller mentioned, that he was attracted to socialism in his youth, and it was very prevalent on the Jewish street. It was quite common in the Jewish working-class immigrant neighborhoods at his t- at the time. Personally, his own family was closer to an urban middle class, um, and then he rejected uh, socialism and went along on a different path. It is interesting to note, though, that it was the unions who eventually succeeded in getting the work week down to five days. It, it would be a nice topic one day to speak about Jewish socialism and in general American socialism during the early decades of the 20th century when it was at its heyday. Um, but it is just worth noting once we spoke about the lack of Shabbos observance because it was impossible to uh, to observe Shabbos and, and, and still retain a job. But it was the socialist unions who eventually, later on in the century, got the work week down to five days, which enabled Jews to finally observe Shabbos in the post-war. So those awful socialist unions weren't so bad after all. But that's another topic. In, in any event, Rav Igna Miller was quite diligent. He was uniquely religious and very goal-oriented relative to the children of his age. He studied Torah on his own initiative. He taught himself Hebrew using a Hebrew-English dictionary where he would memorize words. He would practice writing them. He would practice, in general, his writing skills, which he would become quite uh, known for. And and, uh, and and that's how his early years went. In 1917, Rav Nachman Schwartz, which I mentioned in the episode on this Jewish history in Baltimore. So Rav Nachman Schwartz opened the first primary day school with religious instruction in Baltimore. It was one of the first in the country, in fact. And Rav Miller was already too old to join that. He, so he continued in public school. But soon enough, Rav Chaim Eliezer Samson opened a continuation of Rav Schwartz's school for older children. And Rav Miller's father had him join that school. I was actually privileged to know Reb Samson's daughter. She authored a book about her father and his amazing accomplishments entitled A Jubilee of Watching. It's also a great book. Uh, she lived in Arze Habira in Yerushalayim in her later years, and her husband was Rabbatl Rabinovich, who was an Altamir, who I knew when he was nearly 100 years old. And uh, uh, Rebetzin Rabinovich, this daughter of Reb Chaim Samson, had me laying the Megillah for them on Purim during the last a couple of years of his life, uh, so that was a privilege. Either way, it was at this time that the, and she used to tell me stories about her father, that's why I brought it up. Either way, it was at this time that the young Avigdor became close friends with Rabbi Yehuda Davis, and they would follow similar paths over the next several years, another fascinating individual. This yeshiva of Rabbi Chaim Eliezer Samson hired a Rebbe to study privately with the Rebbe Miller. 
His name was Ravram Elio Axelrod. He was a Lubavitcher chassid and a close student of the Rebbe the Rashab of, of Lubavitch. And he was, uh, this Rabbi Axelrod was a rabbi of the Tzemach Tzedek Shul in Baltimore, appropriately. And when the yeshiva did not have the funds to pay him for his tutoring, he continued to do so anyway, free of charge. Fascinating. And Rabbi Axelrod would send Rabbi Vigda Miller to the post office to mail the money that he had raised for the Rebbe de Rayats in Soviet Russia, where he was valiantly trying to uphold Jewish life. So Rabbi Vigda Miller was uh, involved in that as well by bringing the money to the post office. Um, he was also close with the rabbi of his shul, the Mishkan Yisrael Shul in Baltimore, who was a Slabatka alumnus named Rabbi Yosef Yaakov Marcus, who was a great orator, and that left an impression on the younger Rabbi Miller as well. Another Hasidic Torah scholar who he was uh, closely acquainted with and influenced by was Rabbi Michal Eliezer Forschlager, a Polish Hasid and a close student of the Avnei Nezer, the Sachachava Rebbe. In 1918, an organization was founded by a group of young men and women in Baltimore called the Adas B'nai Yisrael. Its stated goal was to encourage Shabbos observance, and these young idealists eventually opened their own shul and maintained youth groups for boys and girls separately, which was very revolutionary for the time. Rabbi Huda Davis was eventually the rabbi of this shul, and members of the youth group were the original core students of the newly established Tells Yeshiva in the United States, in Cleveland, and they were sent by Rabbi Huda Davis when Elia Meir Bloch founded Tells in Cleveland in the 1940s. Rabbi Vigdor Miller was very active in this organization, and it was the first place that he exhibited both his leadership talents as well as his teaching skills. Following high school in 1925, Rabbi Vigdor Miller decided that he wanted to continue his yeshiva education, which was almost unheard of at the time, and he goes to New York and joins uh, Ritz, Rabbeinu Yitzchakol Chanan Theological Seminary, which was still on the Lower East Side at the time. It was run by Rabbi Dr. Bernard Revel, and over there he becomes a student of Rabbi Shalima Palyachik, the Maichita Eloi, of Rabbi Shimon Shkup, when he was a Rabbi, was the Rosh Hashiva in, in Rabbi Yitzchakol Chanan, in uh, 1929, and then subsequently of Ramesha Soloveitchik when he became the Rosh Hashiva uh, during this time. This is when uh, Rabbi Nitzchakon was in its heyday. Um, he couldn't afford tuition. They allowed him to attend without tuition. They even allo- allocated him a stipend to cover his living expenses. Together with Rabbi Vigdamilo there at the time were his fellow students, some of whom were Rabbi Huda Davis, Ramesha Bick, Rabbi Nassan Vacht Feigl, Reb Chaim Pinchas Scheinberg, Reb Matcha Gifter, Reb Nachman Glustein, Reb Aaron Paperman, Dr. Joseph Kamenetsky, and several other future rabbis and activists and leaders of the American Torah landscape. It's fascinating how this was it. This was the place uh, to be at the time. Um, and uh, Reb Meishe Soloveitchik even asked Reb Vigda Miller to teach his young son Aaron uh, Soloveitchik English. So he used to go through old classics of English literature to teach him. Um, in general, Ravigda Miller preferred studying independently and not to be limited to a certain pace or subject or sheer. He'd often describe his wandering off into one of the Lower East Side shtibels to study. He would go all night uh, once in a while in the Gerish shtibel and he would witness the immigrant workers arriving in shul while it was still dark outside to study for a few hours before davening and heading off to work. Uh, eventually, Rev. Revel opened up Yeshiva College and moved it to Washington Heights. 
Ravinda Miller was not excited about these developments, and he supposedly even participated in some sort of protest against the changes. Um, Reb Miller and Rebuda Davis organized a Tanya study session in Reb Victor Miller's dorm room. So he was learning uh, Tanya surreptitiously as well. And Reb Yaakov Yosef Herman, the legendary uh, All for the Boss um, hero, would come to Reb Yitzchak and study Masila Sisharim with uh, this Chabura also that Reb Victor Miller had organized. Later on, Reb Miller would encourage Rucham Shane, the daughter of Reb Yaakov Herman, to publish the book All for the Boss about her illustrious father, and even he even uh, was gracious enough to write the foreword to that book. So, what happens is the next development is that Rabbi Isaac Sher, the Rosh Hashiva of Slabatka, of the Slabatka branch that remained in Lithuania, and he was the son-in-law of the altar of Slabatka of Nesnesi Finkel, he had arrived in the United States to fundraise for the yeshiva, and he was quite unsuccessful at doing so, as it was during the Great Depression. Yet on this trip, he inspired several students of Rabbi Yitzchak to come and study in the Lithuanian yeshivas. One of the ones who was actually not able to go was Dr. Joseph Kamenetsky, who was later the head of Torah Masora, and I had an episode devoted to him way back when. Um, and uh, Dr. Kamenetsky was not able to go because uh, he wasn't doctor yet, actually. He was Joseph Kamenetsky, still, before he went to Columbia. Um, but his father was ill, and he couldn't leave him. And he cried to Rabbi Isaac Sher that he wasn't able to go join him in Slabatka. Rabbi Isaac Sher told him, you can make your shtender into Slabatka, which is an interesting concept. And then he kissed him on the forehead, and he said to those around him, this is someone who thinks. Interesting uh, uh, assessment of uh, of Joseph Kamenetsky. Either way, we get back to Ravigda Miller, and he was enraptured by Rabbi Isaac Sher, who would later on become his Rebbe for life, and he later on would go to Slabatka. His non-observant sister Lillian would pay for his ship ticket to get to Slabatka, for which he was eternally grateful, and she also later on signed the affidavit several years later to enable Ravigda Miller's wife to enter the United States, as she was not a U.S. citizen. Um, so, the Rabbi initially did not feel the need to study in Europe. He said, I'm advancing enough in my studies in Rabbi Yitzchak and he was on his way to becoming a rabbi or some sort of Torah teacher. Rabbi Yudha Davis tried to encourage him to go with him. He said, you may have quantity, but in Slabatka you'll also have quality, and you'll accomplish much more in less time. So Rabbi said, what am I going to do with all the extra time then? So Rabbi Yudha Davis said, you can play baseball. Um, which I guess it was in jest. Yudha uh, Davis at that time returns to Europe for, and he attended the Slabatka, yeshiva, the Slabatka Yeshiva and this time he brought his 12-year-old son Chuni, uh, excuse me, 12-year-old brother Chuni Davis with him. Chuni was only 12 years old, so he brought a basketball along with him, and Yehuda Davis made a makeshift basket, a hoop, for him, and he was playing with his brother one day, and the head of the Kovna Kailer of Zalman Paramut, who was eventually killed by the Nazis, as was most of the Slobodka and Kovna yeshivas and communities. So this Reb Zalman Paramut approaches them, and he says to Yehuda Davis, you have to be in Seder, you should be studying Torah and not be playing ball. Uh, but since your brother needs to play ball, he asked uh, Rabbi Yehuda Davis to teach him, Rabbi Zalman, to ha- how to play, and he volunteered to stay with Chuni and play ball with him, which is a fascinating story, and that's that's a bit about uh, what type of people were in Slabatka at that time. Either way, Rav Miller decided on his own initiative to sojourn to Slabatka, and he arrives there on Erev Shavuos 1932, when he's 24 years old. He'd remain there for the next six years. And he thought he would never leave. He didn't plan on returning to the United States. He got married in, in Lithuania. He sought a rabbinical position there. But circumstances eventually led to his returning to the U.S. At this time, 
Slabatka was a, a bit past its heyday. The majority of the Slabatka yeshiva had moved to Hebron in 1925, and then following the massacre in the summer of 1929, had uh, moved part of it to Yerushalayim, part of it to Tel Aviv. Um, the altar of Slabatka had moved to Hebron uh, following the yeshiva's move there, as had the Rosh Yeshiva of Moshe Mordechai Epstein. The altar had passed away in Yerushalayim in 1927. Rameshim Mordechai Epstein was still alive at this time in 1932. Um, he passed away a year later. He was living in Yerushalayim where the Hebron Yeshiva was located. And as a result, the Slabatka branch that remained in Lithuania was much smaller and was somewhat past its uh, days of, uh, of glory. But it was still a prestigious yeshiva and had somewhat a large student body as well, a couple of hundred uh, students. It was also in Lithuania, not in Poland, where... Most of the yeshivas were. The borders of Poland were quite large in the interwar period, and Lithuanias were quite small. So most of the Lithuanian-style yeshivas were actually in Poland at this time, and there was a sealed border between the two countries. They did not like each other. So Slobodka is in a small country which does not have many yeshivas. It's not part of the Varhe yeshivas. It's not part of the Vilna area where Mir and Radin and all the famous yeshivas were. So it's, it's, it also somewhat contributes uh, to, you know, it was isolated and has contributed to its not being the crown jewel of the Lith- Lithuanian yeshiva world that it once was prior to World War I. Nevertheless, it was still an impressive place and it was led by two prime students of the altar of Slabatka. First of all, his son-in-law, Rabbi Isaac Sher, who was the Rosh Hashiva and Rabbi Vigdor Miller's primary Rebbe, and also the altar's right-hand man, Rabbi Ram Grudzinski, who was the Mashgiach. The latter, uh, his wife, Rabbi, uh, excuse me, Rabbi Ram Grudzinski's wife had recently uh, passed away, and he was raising his eight children by himself while guiding and leading the yeshiva, especially because Rabbi Isaac Sher was very often away fundraising, so he ran the whole yeshiva himself. And Rabbi Ram Grudzinski, together with uh, Rabbi Isaac Sher, published the altar of Slobodka's writings, uh, eventually, during the war, Rogodinsky and four of his children were killed by the Nazis in Kovna. Four other children survived the travails of the Kovna ghetto. It seems that Ravigda Miller was also close to the Rogodinsky, though his primary rebbe was uh, Rabbi Isaac Sher. The six years he spent there defined him for the rest of his life. He always considered himself a Slabatka Talmud and of Rabbi Isaac Sher. He saw it as his defining feature and goal to transmit that legacy uh, to, for the rest of his life. Uh, he also considered himself one of the last great links to the original Slobodka style of Musser and outlook on life. He accustomed himself to closely observing his teacher's behavior in Slobodka, and he wanted to grow from their mannerisms in addition to their teachings. In addition to those two mentioned above, Reber Hirsch Heller, the father-in-law of Rav and of Rabbi Yaakov Kavanetsky was still the senior mashgiach at this time, though he'd soon moved to Yerushalayim. But still, Rabbi Miller was uh, met this personality, Rabbi Hirsch Heller, who had attended Rabbi Stroll Salanter's funeral half a century earlier, and this gave him a sense of a tangible connection to the earliest stages of the Muslim movement, the Muslim ideology with which he would identify for the remainder of his life, and which he attempted to impart to all of his students and congregants. He was also close with Mordechai Shulman, uh, Rabbi Isaac Sher's son-in-law, and another prominent student of Slabatka, Rameshita Kaczynski, who was later the Mashgiach of uh, Slabatka Ibn Abrak. In fact, Rameshita Kaczynski's grandson, Shlomo Tekaczynski, Dr. Shlomo Tekaczynski, later wrote the definitive work on the history of the Slabatka Yeshiva as his doctorate, and it is an excellent and highly recommended book as well. Either way, Slabatka was still in its old wooden building and had been in the process of attempting to fund the new building for about a decade. It was finally finished as the war broke out, and they moved in and used it for several months before the Soviets shut it down. It's very tragic. The building is still standing. There's an old plaque there 
um, which we see on the groups when we go to Lithuania, when they go to, uh, bring the groups to the old building, the, the excuse me, the new building, which was barely used, the old building has uh, doesn't exist anymore. But um, the uh, the physical accommodations were quite limited because it was this old ramshackle building. Uh, it was in a poor neighborhood, dirt roads. It was unlike Kovna, which was the bigger, more modern city. He once said, Irving Miller once said, that he wanted to author a book about Rabbi Isaac Sher, but he didn't have time. Uh, he used to observe him and Rabbi Ramgajenski and noted their different styles. He said Rabbi Ramgajenski was more friendly, Rabbi Isaac was more stern, Rabbi Ram's Purim Suda was more fun. Uh, he noted that they were both very aristocratic, exemplifying the godless Adam of Slobodka. They never yawned in public, he pointed that out. He said they were always doing something. If they weren't physically doing something, they were always at least deep in thought. Uh, they, he, he also noted that they never said the word bad. If they had to say something was bad, they would say it's not good. They had a certain nobility of character. And they would each deliver several Musser talks every week, and Rabbi Miller would attend them all. He related that when he first arrived at his place of lodging in Slabatka, his hosts discreet, discreetly, tactfully, and immediately showed him where the outhouse was, because it would be embarrassing for a, uh, a newcomer to ask a stranger as the first question, hey, by the way, where's the bathroom? So the host felt that it would be appropriate to show him right away where it was, in a very, you know, n- nice way. So he felt that that personified the Slobatka behavior, and he would go on to do that for his guests throughout his life as well. So it, it's interesting, it's these small things that are often overlooked that he felt were important to emphasize. So in Slobatka, they wouldn't refer to non-Jews as a shagitz because he's a human being in the image of God, and it is improper to refer to them in a derogatory fashion. Many years later, on his famous uh, daily walks, so one time he passed by a homeless fellow on the sidewalk in Brooklyn, and he gathered some nearby newspapers and placed it under his head so that this fellow should be more comfortable, stating that this person is a tzelem him and deserves respect. So um, Victor Miller used to go on his own out to the outskirts of Kavna. By this time, he had already connected with the Sefer that would become his trademark and favorite, the Chayvis Alavavis, and specifically the Shar HaBechina of the Chavis Alavavis, where the author describes how one can seek out and find God and his wisdom through nature. And the younger Rebbe Miller would spend time in the fields, deep in thought and contemplation, taking in his surroundings, uh, the na- natural surroundings. Rebbe Miller would impart the lessons of Slobodka for the rest of his life, and it formed the cornerstone of all his teaching, teachings. Often he'd accompany it with stories from his teachers there um, in, uh, that he either heard or witnessed himself, and then it comes time to get married. Or Mordechai Shulman uh, recommended a shidduch between Rav Egda Miller and Chana Etel Lesson. She was the daughter of Rabbi Yaakov Meizel Lesson, who was one of the closest students of the altar, and at that time the rabbi of the nearby town of Neistat. And his father, Rabbi Yaakov Meizel Lesson's father, had been the cipher of both the Chavetz Chaim and the Rebbe, the Rebbe Shab of Chabad. So he had come from a prestigious family. The Chana Etel had attended the very... A uh, very uh, prestigious Yavna girls' school in Tel, so she was quite educated for her time. The main attraction for her was that her shidduch uh, uh, was an American. It was very exciting to, to, to be able to date and marry an American. When they dated, it was during Sphira, Sphira Saimer, and Ravigda Miller did not shave. Almost everyone else, including yeshiva students, did so in those days. And see, she said she was not phased by that, which was quite unique. So here we have an interesting scenario that I'd like to take a step back and analyze for a minute. Most of the youth of Lithuania at this time was in the process of loosening their connection to traditional Jewish life at the time, or even already completely secularized. The few who were still religious, and even fewer were yeshiva students. Same with girls. And here we have a graduate of Yavna, a graduate of Slabatka, 
So we're pretty much at the pinnacle of religious observance at this time in Lithuania. And it was still considered a very big deal that he didn't shave during Sphira and that she was okay with that. So that's just pretty interesting as a, as a, a, a zoom in on Lithuanian Jewish life at the time. The young couple settled in Slabatka, Yaakov Moshe Lesson, in addition to his rabbinical responsibilities in Neistat, he also was a fundraiser for Slabatka. And, and when he was away fundraising, his son-in-law, Rabbi Victor Miller, filled in for him as a rabbi when he was away. It is likely, I don't know for sure, that this is the only instance in history when an American-born and raised rabbi served in a rabbinical position in Lithuania. Once, at a Slabatka function, the U.S. ambassador to Lithuania attended, and they needed someone to speak to him in English and entertain him, so Rabbi Miller sat next to him, and they spoke about baseball, and it turned out that they had attended the same high school in Baltimore, and this relationship was utilized after that to uh, get uh, visas when he needed to leave, uh, so it was a, a good investment. Rabbi Miller studied, studied in the Slabatka Kovna Kail, and he received his rabbinical ordination from the Kovna Rav, the Dvar of Ram, or Rav Ram Daivber Kahana Shapiro, the Slabatka Rav, Rav Zalman Osavsky, and Rav Ram Yitzchak Bloch, the rabbi and Rosh Hashiva of Tels. Uh, he observed the deterioration of traditional Jewish life in Slabatka Kovna as well. In many ways, it was not that different than in the United States. And he therefore, as a somewhat outside and sharp an astute observer. He witnessed the collapse of Jewish life in his own lifetime on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. It was almost as if Torah society had no future. To compound things, whatever did remain of Torah society was destroyed in the Holocaust. So taken together, this filled him with a sense of mission to do his part to rescue traditional Jewish life, to rebuild it, to teach, to educate, to leave an impact, to serve as an example for others. In other words, his life circumstances, together with his own personal growth, education, and ambition, provided him with a sense of direction and a life's mission. In 1938, late 1938, following the Munich Agreement, the U.S. Embassy in Kovna began to advise U.S. citizens to leave the area. He got his wife a visa and returned to Baltimore, determined to commence a career in the rabbinate and in Jewish education. Uh, you see, he returns to the United States, which he'd never leave for the rest of his life. His father, Lord Yakovlevich Lesson, was actually fundraising for Slobodka with the war's outbreak, and he ended up surviving, but the rest of his family was killed, as was most of Slobodka. Rabbi Yakovlevich Lesson became a rabbi in Dorchester, Massachusetts for a short time, and was eventually hired as the Meshgiach of Yeshiva University, where he would remain for the rest of his life until his passing in 1975. So Rabbi Miller eventually gets hired as a rabbi in Chelsea, Massachusetts, and uh, he, for, he was there for about six years. And um, his uh, subsequent move to Brooklyn after that, his, his rabbinate, his career in Chelsea, and his subsequent move to Brooklyn, and his positions in uh, the Chaim Berlin Yeshiva, as well as the rabbi of the young Israel of rugby, will be the subject of part two uh, on the story of Rav Victor Miller's life, which will be next week. And his later years will be the subject of part three. So I'm looking forward to that. This was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at yehudat.yehudigaber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.